Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's show, I'm really delighted to be speaking with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kiki Leutner, a business psychologist and data scientist who combines psychological theory with machine learning methodology. Her interests span from personality profiling, the ethical application of algorithms in behavioral analytics, game-based assessment and consumer psychology, to personal values, social media psychology and entrepreneurship. Kiki works with businesses by providing a more human-centered approach to data science, customer profiling and personalization. And although it sounds possibly like a bit of a strange fit, I wanted to invite her onto the show to explore from a personality-based perspective what it means to have a sense of self and identity, how this relates to personality and also to our sense of connectedness and belonging. I really hope you enjoy the show. So Kiki, um, thank you very much for joining me in this conversation. I'm excited about this because we're friends and we've done lots of interesting talks with each other about personality and about the weird vagaries of human nature. And so um, so I'm excited to bring your voice into the mix. Yeah, very excited to be here and be on the Hive podcast, which has had some very interesting <laughs> guests. So yeah. So um, I'm going to start by asking you the question that I've asked all of the guests so far, and that's where do you think we're headed as a species? Ooh, this is very interesting. Um, I think we're headed upwards, ultimately. Maybe there'll be a downturn. But if you look at the last years or centuries that we have visibility over, I think things have become better, right? People get smarter. Uh, we get more interesting things added to our lives. And this is obviously very interesting with everything that's gone on with the internet and the destruction of the environment and how it's going to be handled. But ultimately, I think we'll just keep going better and better. Is that very optimistic? Maybe. I love that it's that optimistic. You're the first one that's that's um, shared <laughs> even, well, <laughs> a percentage of optimism. That's not quite fair to my other guests, but... Um, <laughs> But this is why it's also good to have a mix of, of different voices on the show. So interesting with the with the technology and with the up sort of the upward direction of progress, which is not a word that you use, but I kind of sense that's where maybe you're going with it. And I'm curious what you think is likely to unfold with the crisis or the environmental crisis, which you just mentioned, how these things might blend together um, in order to, to give you a rosy, rosier outlook. Yeah, I, you know, if you're, if you're very optimistic, there's obviously lots of problems we could talk about. But if you're very optimistic, humans are all about collaboration, communicating ideas, growing with knowledge. And technology has just made that easier and made it easier on a global scale. So I would hope that we can also find solution to those, mm. solutions to those massive problems using all of that technology and the connections that we have, um, which is I think hopeful. On the other hand, you can think that everything is globalized and we'll make mistakes like we used to, but we'll make them on a massive scale. So rather than, you know, one country ending up in a famine and really mm. messing things up and everyone else around surviving, we might, you know, mess everything up for everyone globally. Um, but I hope that is not the case and I hope that mm. we can use other technology to share ideas more and to ultimately just drive progress faster, right? So it used to maybe take 
um, a team of scientists decades to even just find each other and then learn of each other's ideas and then test new things and progress that can now happen in like a few years right um, so yeah I'm hopeful that technology helps because it helps us communicate and um, and you know progress and innovate but that's not to say there aren't all the scary downsides mm. and I wonder if there's also an aspect um, of technology amplifying human nature and human behaviors for good and for bad as opposed to I mean clearly it provides a huge amount of potential for collaboration for um, rapid communication for the sharing of knowledge on a, on a scale and speed at which we've never uh, you know encountered before but also all the distraction that it facilitates and the yeah. consumption of energy every time we whip out our phones to read an email It feels as though it's just effortless, but of course there's energy that's going into us being able to access that. So I'm talking about electricity and also all the, all the fundamental materials that are required to build the tech on which we so heavily rely. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are many, many destructive sides to it. Um, but I think on the whole, it's about helping um, us connect and communicate. But yeah, like you said, it's... Also, every time that there's innovation, you know, I think you're quite open and innovative and maybe so am I, right? <laughs> yeah. But there's also a, a kind of benefit, I think, to being conservative and not wanting too much change too quickly. Mm. And when I look at some of the ways in which media has changed, right, with Facebook, and it's just seems to me like there's too much change too quickly and it's a getting out of hand a little bit. And um, when you look back in history, not that I'm a historian, But I have this kind of theory every time there's a new medium, right? It really steers things up quite a lot mm. um, because it just changes the power balance. Um, and that's what we're wit witnessing at the moment, right? There's a new medium, a new way of doing things, and it's just steering things up and giving people, um, you know, power that maybe previously didn't have it or didn't have it as much. Um, and that can obviously accelerate bad things as well like we've seen in the last few years, yeah. With your background in psychology and in personality, mm -hmm. um, I'd really like to explore this, this question with you because with, the, with some of the other guests talking about how we conceive of the self, we look at the sense of relatedness that humans have, many of us have lost with the wider environment as, as a networked organism. So not just within the, the human networks of mm -hmm. society, community, country, and then on a global scale, the, the world, but also with other living beings. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, how do you conceive of the self? Yeah, very interesting question. So I've actually studied this a lot in terms of personality psychology. Mm. And... Mm, Probably the center idea here is that you define the self by defining it compared to others in a way. Mm -hmm. So um, you're saying that what is unique about someone, what is their personality, is how they are different to everyone else in that aspect or compared to everyone else. So when we um, define someone's personality, we might say it's someone's behavior pre preferences and tendencies, how they typically um, tend to behave. But then we, we measure that in comparison to everyone else. So I can say one important um, aspect of personality is how much energy we get from relating to other people versus um, maybe doing things more with ourselves or more, uh, we're more comfortable dealing with people that we know um, rather than strangers. So that's what we call extroversion. And the way we define mm -hmm. it is how much are you like that compared to everyone else. Um, and I think there's a, a deeper thought to that, which is that yourself is not just you it's how other people see you and that really is the important bit about you right so reputation um, and how other people perceive you is what ultimately informs us in forming ourselves as well right because we're social beings we want other people to see us in a certain way we want to communicate who we are to others um, and that shapes how how we dress how we act what we say what we engage in um, and then social media has kind of exacerbated that massively because we're sharing constantly what we're doing and shaping impressions of ourselves to not just a few immediate people around us, but larger audiences. Um, and we're kind of constantly engineering what we're doing or what we're sharing to, to communicate almost 
you know, a brand of who we are in the most extreme forms. Mm. Um, so the self as being fundamentally relational, so the sense of I exist as a self in relationship to those around me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. And it's curious, so like what you say about the brand of self, which is such a good way of putting it, um, yeah. and talking about maybe, you know, within social channels, certain behaviours or... Um, signaling of values being socially reinforced through things like I'm guessing validation such as likes or engagement or comments or whatever it might be mm. or views of content or sharing of content um, what role do you think there is for technology in helping us to generate a deeper sense of identity versus something which feels a little bit more surface level yeah that's very interesting so I think about probably 10 years ago um, researchers started looking at Facebook data. And mm. back then it was kind of controversial um, to publish with that data because people were saying, but that's just what someone puts on Facebook. That's not really them. Um, and then, of course, what happened is lots of research came out to show that is actually really them. We find a really high relationship between what someone does on Facebook and then how they report their personality or how others rate their personality. Um, and we kind of learned that, which makes sense, right? You use social media because you want to communicate something about who you are. It wouldn't almost make sense to make up a fake persona. Or if you were, then that's probably who you want to be um, mm. in a way, right? And you would strive to be like that in, in real life, in parentheses as well. Um, so I wonder with that, though, because I'm thinking... Um also about the ways in which people splinter into different social channels for different things. So, for instance, yeah. since um, starting this art course, I use Instagram very heavily, but only really to post art and quotes or poetry. Like, for me, it's an artistic platform, and the people I follow, yeah. it's almost all artists. Um, and I take very few selfies, and occasionally I might put in my story something to do with my work. But it's, it's a very compartmentalised domain. Um, and then Twitter might be for my more kind of... I don't know, thought-based um, offerings that's connected more to my political perspective or ideas on technology. What do you think about the propensity that we might have to share certain aspects of ourselves across specific channels? Can we ever get um, a more integrated, holistic sense of a person just from a single channel? Mm. I think that's very interesting what you're touching upon because so from a um, personality scientist perspective, right, I would analyze both, uh, both of your profiles, um, which I happen to look at uh, all the time. So <laughs> I would say both of your profiles show a very open personality, right? Someone who's very interested in new ideas. You share um, kind of thought provoking, interesting stuff on Twitter. Um, you share these really interesting <laughs> quotes about what human life is on Instagram. Um, you show that you're doing interesting things on both platforms, right? On one, you might talk about your, your speaking engagements. On the other, you show your artwork. So that doesn't show to me a completely different person. But what you've done, I think, is you had to optimize the content so you get an audience on either platform, right? Which is this whole thing of you get followers and you get likes by making a coherent brand on that platform. Um, otherwise, you would have to catch someone who's really into fine art and also into these kind of psychology interests, right? And everyone else wouldn't follow that account. Um, Although it is curious because I, I do wonder how that works. <laughs> but you're also a professional on social media, right? So someone who's on their more to share their life and their friends. Maybe they don't do it to that much of a degree. Mm. But I think t there is that pressure to brand yourself almost, right? And to go mm. into that one aspect. And maybe you're right that that's um, limiting our experience of ourself as a bit more one-dimensional because you're kind of enhancing that one side of yourself, even though there might be lots of other things going on mm. too about you. That's super interesting. I didn't expect to get like a... That was a really accurate perspective. But also we know each other, so it's kind of... <laughs> It's helpful to have that extra context. Um, but I'm kind of also curious about what role, I mean, maybe this is something that touches on generational context, possibly, but I also wonder what role one's desire for privacy plays in how much we share um, across different channels, because there's got to be... I imagine there's got to be quite a large amount of individual variance between one person and the next in terms of how much intimate information they want to put out there about themselves. Yeah, yeah. This is, I think, very interesting as well. And 
in terms of especially because um with social media is so permanent and exaggerated and it's there forever mm. i really struggle with it i don't like it at all mm. i would rather not have anyone know anything about me right but it's kind of difficult when <laughs> you're trying to get your ideas out at the same time yeah um but it's i think it's becoming a bigger part of the everyday person's life that struggle right how much do i want to communicate how much do i want to put on my profile you know do i do I add this colleague onto my Instagram or not? Hmm. Who do I share with? Um, which I do think is different than before we had the social media stuff around. There wasn't as much of that pressure, but I, I don't know. I wasn't living a professional life, let's say, in those mm. times, so I can't compare. It's, it's weird because I think it kind of gets us, it goes back to your point about branding. So it gets us to explicitly codify who we are, what traits we want to be perceived as having, um, how, and how we want to be received and then also quantify or qualify a mixture of both I would suggest the, the relationships that we have the networks that we have and decide how to optimise mm. the ways and the things that we share in order to create some kind of um, I guess in order to achieve some kind of goal or create some kind of reputation or illusion it just feels like a lot of the stuff that previously we would have done implicitly so you know, being drawn to relate to some people more than others, we're now being a lot more conscious about in some respects. Of course, I, yeah, it depends yeah, that's on true. how yeah. much we care about our intimate details being made public. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Do you think it changes the ways in which we relate to people and that we conceive of ourselves? I think what you said there is very important that you, you're kind of doing it publicly and when you think about being on social media and you're liking certain things and other people can see that you like them, right? And you can't control who those other people are. So you're immediately, if you're aware of that, you're immediately confronted with this thing of, I have an, I have an intuitive um, reaction to this, that I like this content or I find it interesting. But then would I want everyone else to see that I find it interesting? What is, how do I define myself? What do I want other people to know about me? How do I, you know, impression manage who I am and define myself um, in this area. And you're kind of confronted with that very explicitly and constantly. Um, yeah. One of the things I'm, I've been reading about quite a lot recently is this idea of the different constructions of self that different cultures and traditions might have. So in the West, we have this idea of a very atomized, individual, impermeable self. So this sense that we turn inward we do therapy we read self-help books we live in a culture in which we're determined to have a successful life many of us depending on you know what that looks like for, for each individual and so there's a sense of almost excessive focus on the individual whereas in other cultures um another one of my guests i think it was andy lecture was talking about how in some other cultures there's more of a sense that the self can be a permeable thing which sits within a wider network, which is touched more intimately by one's surrounding. And so the sense of a self which is constantly responding to and in relationship with other beings, not just human, but also, you know, I don't know, your pet dog or the, the pigeons that come and, you know, bother you while you eat or whatever it might be. And so I wonder with this, with this emphasis by technology, where we are now, on the self, on this constant self-reflection, this constant self-assessment, and also this sense of perceiving oneself through the lens of the imagined other, the imagined audience. I wonder what that does to a deeper sense of identity that we might have about who we are. So I think there's a lot around what you mentioned with being in an individualistic culture and social media kind of I think it's the perfect result of that, right? Mm. So it's not just it's not just technology, it's technology coming from America, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always think about this with with um with the dating apps as well, right? So the whole concept of going on dates is I'm German, as you can't tell from my accent. <laughs> but, so that whole concept in Germany just works in a completely different way. Um and then these kind of apps come over from America where going on dates is a very normal thing to do and a very kind of standard way of approaching dating, right? You take someone out on a date and this technology gets ported over 
and it's kind of maybe used differently in other countries and but it it brings this way of one culture into another country and I think with or another culture and I think with um, individualism it's it's a bit similar right so we have these social media platforms that are that have this big emphasis on how you brand yourself and talking about yourself and what you do um, which is maybe to some other cultures is more foreign than it is to um, Americans who are using the platforms but it's kind of changed the way all of us interact now and how, how we use it and how we brand ourselves so um, there's a big component I think of culture that is put into these technologies mm -hmm. right so I think that could be a social media that works completely differently and doesn't just focus on the individual and that focus on the individual itself I think can have really positive advantages right so you can share your talents you can achieve something that you want to um, but it also has some negative connotations right which is that not all of us can be superstars not all of us can have the most followers uh, where does it leave everyone else um, how how do we value someone who who does things without having a massive audience right all those mm. kind of questions are thrown up and then if we define ourselves as the attention we get from an imagined audience like you say um then what is left if if there isn't that attention oh that's um, such a fascinating question and actually it's interesting the sense of this is a conversation that comes up quite a lot with the people um i am training in art with and uh, one of the questions that comes up is is someone an artist if there's no one there to see their art like it's the same sort of well, I guess it's a slightly different question to um, the tree in the woods. If a tree falls down in the wood and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? I mean, I think the art question or this one, the the performance, because it's essentially we're tapping into, on the one hand, the sense of performance of self or performance of a work. Um, or in the case of an art uh, piece, it's the product itself that lives outside of the artist. And if someone witnesses the art, is that the thing the interaction that makes it a piece of art. And so I wonder with the sense of self, how real can a person be in a modern age if there's someone who decides not to be on social? Or maybe the more interesting question is, how real are the people who are most reliant on their social platforms for attention, for reinforcement, for validation? Like, What, what have you seen um, as being some of the darker effects of social media use and um, misuse in some senses? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I think there's, there's this sort of existential question, which mm. is almost philosophical, right? Like, where is this culture coming from? What's the benefits of having this individualistic culture? How, and I think artists, like you say, or performers or people who have, like, let's say, sought audiences, um, traditionally, they would have thought about these questions a lot. Now, maybe more of us think about it that weren't traditionally in those areas. Um, or even just, you know, people in everyday life. Um, and then the other question is more on a general basis, how does um, social media negatively affect people? And I mm. kind of tend to think that it reminds me a little bit about the discussions around TV, you know, when <laughs> back in the 90s, when we were growing up. And it's like, how bad is TV and how much of it should we watch? And every time there's a newish technology, people get worried. Um, so on that kind of individual level effect, I think it, it comes back to the same answers that you need to have responsible use. Um, you know, don't obviously don't engage in it on an, on an addictive level, limit your time on it. Um, people who struggle with um, whatever problems it might be, right? Anxiety, depression, um, self-doubt, they might use the platforms in a way to worsen those conditions, but that mm. doesn't mean the platform is causing it. Mm. Um, what, what I am way more worried about and interested in as well is the kind of societal effect that um, Facebook especially has had, right? So when they, when they change the way in which people consume news and, and the way mm. in which we can buy opinions and, and influence decision-making, um, that's, I think, where we've seen the biggest harm in parentheses from social media when that wasn't what people were originally worried about, you know? Like five, ten years ago, people weren't yeah. saying, oh my God, this is going to change our politics. They were saying, oh, people are addicted to it. 
um, we're gonna have to you know all become these these kind of washed up selves uh, uh, versions of ourselves <laughs> nobody was really worried about the 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 things that we've now seen that are really pro- problematic yeah I do worry about that a lot this this um obscure nature of it the fact that everything is hidden and it's um kind of this orwellian vision of um of the future where it's very difficult to be able to figure out what's real and what's not or more what's opinion and what's fact you know this whole sense of doubt that creeps in um and i think also things like sort of connecting to an earlier thought that i had while you were talking about um the social side of the social side of things the immediacy of response that we get when we experience something that we have a feeling about so for instance um seeing something beautiful or experiencing pleasure and wanting to respond to that naturally and intuitively and then second guessing ourselves mm. because of how we might be perceived um on the one hand, it seems to me as though there's a there's the the tendency for us. I definitely experience this for myself to be more impulsive and more compulsive in the way that we digest information, whether it's news, whether it's any kind of content online. And on the other hand, um, there also seems to be like a an intermediary response between consuming something and having a feeling about it, and then deciding what to do about the feeling. It's almost like there's an observer in the middle going oh I've just had this feeling do I post about it do I respond how do I respond I don't know do you does this is that I don't know if that's clear enough in the way I'm describing it but that is completely impression management right so I think it's just exacerbated because it happens so much every day right so if Mm. you're if you're on on um, social media platforms all the time you're kind of constantly thinking okay what should I put on here Um, and we might in our you know everyday life when we're talking to people we're kind of thinking about the same things right so we might have a filter we might not say everything that comes to our mind Um, we're trying to give up a certain uh, give up a certain impression Um, when you think about you know there's there's lots of um, kind of thoughts and research on people at work and how they change who they are at work versus in their social life and how we can adapt who we are to different contexts to be sort of appropriate. Mm. Um, so I think that's like a human tendency to do that. It might just be exaggerated because we're doing it all the time on social media and maybe also because we have less visibility on who's watching. You know, when you're if you're in a meeting at work, you see the people in front of you, you see their reactions, mm. you might learn from feedback, what's appropriate, what's not. Um, but it's a it's a very human tendency because we ultimately depend on other people's approval and help and existing together in a community. So it's a very, very, I think, innate concern of us to, to want to have um, good relationships and good impressions and to show ourselves in a, in a way that's, I don't know, either demonstrating power or likability in whatever situation we're in. So it's kind of like a very core human desire that's being mm. kind of prodded all the time when you're using these platforms. And so when we're getting, when we're getting reinforcement that certain behaviours are good, um, how does that influence our behaviours? I, I think, so humans are innately social. So you want to get good feedback from others around you and when you get it it tells you this is a behavior that gives me that so I'm going to do it more right Mm. um so if I'm friendly to people and then they talk to me more I might I might do that more um and in the same way it works on social media right Mm. so we have this kind of um businessy goal maybe if you're if you're very tactical about it of increasing your followers but I think there's also just the emotional um innate thing that happens you just want people to like your content and engage with it um and some of us maybe more so than others right Mm. um which is probably part of the self or personality right so people Mm. kind of seek that approval more so than others but i think it's innate um to everyone and you feel i think we can't underestimate how deeply hurtful it is as a human to be rejected in any kind of way um Mm. so not getting positive feedback getting negative feedback um realizing that people might 
um, fight against you or not like your ideas, it's threatening because ultimately you need to exist with other people around you and you can't, you know, exist literally as a human without others around you. So it's quite, at a deep level, it's quite um, important to us that other people approve or see us in the way that we want to be seen. Hmm. And so, for instance, some of the research that I read um, was looking at how people will change what they post based on the feedback that they get. So, for instance, yeah. you know, if you post one out of 10 images that's a selfie and you get lots more interest and engagement on the selfie, then you're likely to post more of those. And then that changes the way in which we maybe perceive ourselves, the way that we relate to, the, to, to our experiences, because if we're taking more selfies, it's going to be... Um, the focus of the experience is probably going to be on getting the perfect shot and not just experiencing the thing itself. So when people decide that, that, and this is sort of a wider question, I guess, but when people decide that certain behaviours that they engage with are not serving them or that are creating, that, that there are certain behaviours that are creating a sense of discomfort um, or whatever it might be, how can mm. we choose to break these conditioned responses, this, yeah, this this desire to create or relate in a way that is going to get us that that affirmation from others online yeah I think what you um touch upon is very interesting is kind of that relationship between what we do and what we what our attitudes are what we think or what we believe um and there there's some really interesting research um about it and it it kind of turns out that if you don't act what in the way that you believe you mm. kind of either change the way you act or you change what you believe so there has to be that internal consistency yeah nobody can live in that space of um they call it cognitive dissonance where mm -hmm. your behaviors don't match with your beliefs um mm. and i think everyone's witnessed it or done it themselves it's like that slippery slope of no i would never work for <laughs> you know a company that has dubious morals and that includes you know nuclear energy, oil and gas, blah, 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 then we all find ourselves doing it. Mm. And, you know, you make up some sort of excuse and you're like, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just uh, working for that division or, you know, actually the bit that I'm working on is helping, you know, yeah. or whatever excuse it is. And you sort of need to do that because you couldn't, it's just kind of not in our nature to say, yes, I'm working for that company and they're evil and I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> We kind of need to we kind of need to align it. So I think the stuff that you're talking about with um, if you constantly get reinforcement that, yes, the best content is if you just post like with a pouty face in front of a selfie, you're going to start forming an identity around that and thinking, yeah, that's actually quite interesting and it's cool. And oh, yeah, God. why don't I become more of this? Like, <laughs> yeah, see, Natalie, <laughs> you should be grateful that you can produce beautiful paintings that you can put <laughs> oh god it just it's so depressing <laughs> to me it's super fucking depressing to me that we just we've gotten to this point where we can achieve so much and we're just taking pictures of asses and lips like i love asses and lips we're just there's a limit you know it's like i love chocolate cake i'm not going to eat it for every single meal of the day i don't know that's probably quite judgmental of me um <laughs> So, okay. so um, okay. So let's talk about this this cognitive dissonance, and um, I want to ask you a little bit about social identity theory, which I've been reading about a bit more recently. And so it looks at how our membership to a group with shared values contributes to our sense of identity. So if if, for instance, in this context, let's say um, we think, okay, well, we want to do uh, more things to help mitigate the negative impact of um, the climate crisis and the things that we're doing to contribute to that. And I want to be pro-environmental, maybe I join some groups like Extinction Rebellion or whatever it is. So then suddenly that group shares some explicit values that I've that I've named. Um, what happens when, for instance, someone's part of another group, like working at a nuclear power plant or, I don't know, an oil and gas? What happens when someone has a set of values that then comes into conflict with their existing group's prevailing ideology? What are the choices that happen there? Kind of also like I'm thinking about the the ways in which most of us are inhabiting a capitalist system which has this idea of perpetual upward growth that is clearly coming into some difficulty um, and maybe it's time to change the system but we're embedded within it. How do we how do we go about yeah. changing um, 
well, changing how and who we are. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting at first to even realize that we all have that conflict and we, I think we all bury it down a bit, um, not to be fraudulent and get into a discussion about repression. <laughs> but I, you know, the um, kind of Greta's mm. fame got me to really reflect on this. And it, I was thinking, what is so like touching or special mm. about her? And I thought, actually, when I was in, um, in school, you know, as a kid, I was really into the environment. Again, I'm German, <laughs> so it's a bit more of a trend there, maybe. <laughs> and you would, you know, feel bad to throw away stuff and you'd want to do things. I did this whole project on renewable energies and how everything should be renewable, trying to get my parents to put, um, you know, solar panels on the roof. And then, you know, life just kind of mm. happens and you start making compromises or getting distracted or making excuses mm. and um with with Bretta it's kind of this hardcore she says it herself right that her autism kind of is her superpower because it keeps her focused on the issue and I thought that is so true mm. she just got she just kept focusing on one issue which is something that most other people don't yeah. seem to be able to do because we get distracted with other things and but I think this little conflict remains in ourselves. So you might define yourself as someone who cares about the environment and who cares about certain political issues, but then your life happens and and you're also interested in this thing professionally, so you're going to mm. do it, or you really want to go on this vacation, so you're going to do it, and you kind of live with this, um, with this inner conflict. And then um, you, you kind of probably compromise to yourself by saying I don't care about it so much really to make it okay or to to make it feel better that you're not acting in that way oh there's the um well another another approach which I am trying to grapple with which I think is just in some ways more intellectually honest or more philosophically honest which is that as humans we have the tendency to be able to live dissonantly it's basically acknowledging that and not trying to bury it by self-justifying or hiding the dissonant behaviour. So, for instance, looking at the hypocrisy of espousing certain values and then going against them in certain actions, which almost all of us do at a certain level. So, for instance, mm-hmm. I take flights in order to go and speak at conferences. And one of the radical ways to kind of deal with that is just to be like, well, that's hypocrisy I'm, I'm being a hypocrite and doing that I shouldn't really say this on the podcast I don't know uh, what it will do for my reputation but I think there is I think there is honesty and power and at least at least trying to name the situation as it is in order to then make change because if you do that and my aim is to reduce my flights I first have to acknowledge the dissonant behavior because otherwise nothing's going to change yeah or at least it'll change but outside of my conscious awareness and I think if we honestly want to be able to consciously create something that is better than we have been able to create so far then it requires a grappling with the the darker sort of shadow side of how we live and who we are and what humanity is capable of yeah at least that's my thought I think it's very interesting what you said even you know the whole other level to this is how we communicate with others and I think even then the approach can't always be so radical you know there are just these different aspects to life within ourselves we have the conflict with other people we have that conflict Mm -hmm. and sometimes I think it's more about coming together understanding what the other person is thinking rather than finding you know one perfect solution Mm -hmm. often solution to these really complex conflicts are found like somewhere in the you know in the meddling gray zone Mm -hmm. There isn't, there isn't like this one bang solution and now it's all solved. Um, mm. It more evolves over time and growing together. And the same way in which you can have this dissonance within yourself and you somehow have to, have to find a way to, to acknowledge it first, right? Mm. I would think we should try and do that with others as well. So um, when, you, when you think about um, the kind of social identity you talked about, I think it's problematic that you form your social identity as belonging to one group that shares, you know, um, one very specific set of opinions Mm. because you should be able to connect with people of other opinions 
and you should be able to have a conversation with them. You don't need to always change their opinion or find a solution, but it helps, right? To to just connect with others so that we don't end up in a in a bubble of these other people who think this thing versus these other people who think the other thing and we don't have anything in common. Mm. So on that on that note actually because if we're talking about one's openness to other perspectives and opinions um maybe you can tell us a little bit about the traits of openness yeah and then also a little bit about whether personality can change yeah exactly so um openness is a very interesting trait mm-hmm. so kind of describes whether someone is um into kind of looking into new ideas it's related to liking things like art um exploring new things um and then on the other hand you have the opposite of openness um which is people who prefer to do things that they already know keep things the way that they are protect what they have um so the interesting thing about this trait is that it's connected to political opinion right mm-hmm. so somewhere the two party system that we see in some countries it's somewhere connected to this what seems to be this human tendency to fall on each end of that spectrum so wanting change or wanting to keep things the same you know being excited by new things and people who are different and ideas that are different versus mm. you know really enjoying what you have and wanting to hold on to it and wanting to protect it and both of them i think are beneficial and probably if we had a world where everyone is super open or everyone is super conservative it it wouldn't end up well so mm, mm. in a very optimistic sense i think the fact that we have that split um in in our personalities right it kind of shows that we need both and and both are beneficial and you kind of have to um balance them out so how do we enter into relationship when there are many mm, forces at play that are trying to enhance that sense of division because i think even though people at the end of those spectra might have very different senses of what they value mm. as you mentioned earlier we all have a sense of um social connection however that expresses itself there are many things that we all seek or that we all search for in in our lives so a desire to belong a desire to connect to be valued to feel like we contribute in some meaningful way um this sort of existential sense of wanting to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. So given that I would suggest that all humans have that, how can we create a context in which people with different opinions, different sets of values can actually meet and I guess kind of find common ground again because it seems like there's so much emphasis on difference that we forget that we have so much more that we that we share and that these two elements have to be in dance with one another in order for the dance to happen in order for life to actually work and not just that you know we find also that um when you look at research in the corporate world you find that teams who are diverse so they have different ideas different personalities they tend to do better um or come up with more innovative ideas Mm -hmm. So there seems to be something really beneficial to that exchange, right? Um mm. and on a on an interpersonal level, I think sometimes it can be really helpful for people to just understand the concept of personality and how everyone is slightly different in the way that they act and what they like and how they might react to what you say or what they're interested in. Um and that can often go a long way at just kind of communicating this this reassurance that they're not against you or they're not crazy or they're not trying anything they're just different so when when you might be um really excited to meet someone new so you go over and you give them a hug and you talk to them that might make them feel really uncomfortable because mm. they're maybe more introverts um and just to acknowledge that difference in how we are i think can sometimes help mm. um at least i think that's why people value getting personality feedback for example right they take um our personality test and then they get some feedback and they learn something about themselves and um that can also that work can also happen in a team where you can then learn about how the different team members um might react to different situations and it often goes a long way at just helping people appreciate that everyone's different um and that 
it's okay. It just means that you have to you have to think about them a little bit differently than you would think about yourself. Mm. It almost sounds like we're we're sort of touching on this sense of um, awareness around the context, so the individual context, the person that we're dealing with. So this sense of empathy or perspective mm-hmm. shift depending on someone else's personality, their experience. And then also um, having a sense that our perspective is not the only one that comes into play and taking things maybe less personally. Is that something that you think we can educate people on? Because I think a lot of the people who I've met who have a greater sense of context and of, of people actually living quite different lives in their own heads despite sharing the same space, often people who have that perspective are the ones who've gone through therapy and who have been challenged themselves in breaking open uh, what it is that drives them, how they perceive the world, and in being challenged, um, yeah, in, in what they think or what they took for granted as being real. Yeah, everyone should do therapy first if they get the chance to. Yeah. <laughs> it can never hurt. Well, it can hurt if you find a really bad therapist. Famous last words, <laughs> Kiki. <laughs> Went to a therapist and they fucked me up. Um, that, that's not been my experience but, but yeah, um, yeah no, I have met people who've had bad times but yeah so personality so I think we can change um, who we are right and we can also mm. of course we can learn more about other people so I was raised in a family of uh, psychologists <laughs> <laughs> so this has kind of been very intuitive to me right to think about people and, and, and what they're thinking and how they are and what they've been through and all of that stuff um, mm. but I find that to a lot of people that's not so intuitive and it's interesting to learn about it. Um, so that is a good first step. And then you can also change yourself, but that change doesn't have to mean that you're now open to, um, that you become, an, instead of being conservative, you become open, right? It's okay to be that as well. But like you say, um, to explore where your position is compared to other people and to be able to um, talk to them and engage and learn about other ideas is probably helpful. I think a lot of it for me comes down to this ability to cultivate curiosity yeah, and also to find a stable enough root within oneself to not feel threatened by difference. And that's something which I think can be really difficult, especially when we're going through a hard time, to be able to say, okay, well, maybe I'm taking this personally, but maybe this person has... A completely different perspective and a different story and what they're saying has actually nothing to do with me or my backstory or whatever that it's very easy to kind of slip into a sense of taking things personally when really there are lots of other um, elements at play yeah I find the in- most interesting conversations are when you're trying to find out from the other person what got them to think in a certain way mm. rather than debating so when I disagree with someone right that can slip into a conversation that is very confrontational um in our political times (laughs) but what i find much more interesting in those instances is trying to figure out why they think that what they like about that idea how they came to think it Mm -hmm. and then you walk away and you learn something about that person and you can you can maybe start talking about you know issues where you have a common ground or just sharing how your interpretation of the situation is very different. Um, so, I mean, unless obviously the other person's a complete <laughs> disaster, <laughs> usually you can connect with people very, um, very interestingly if you try and find out where they're coming from, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious then, because I'm kind of focusing in this series on our connection with the the living world. I'm I'm curious what you think our sense of self does in terms of defining our relationship to others and to species and to the natural world what is it that our sense of self um how does our sense of self color the way that we relate to others yeah i think um there's this i don't know if it's buddhist but there's this kind of idea that first you help yourself then you help others Mm. and i think about that quite a bit because I don't think that you can you can bring kind of goodness and positivity to the world if you're really hurting yourself mm. or you if you're really angry yourself. So the way in which you feel yourself and and your personality and who you are that's what you 
bring to the world, right? Mm. That's what we want to communicate to others. That's what we want others to see. Um, and it kind of happens, I think, very implicitly in a way, right? So um, if you're in a really rough time in your life and you really can't empathize with every, anyone, you're much more likely to be drawn to those um, kind of more confrontational ideas mm. or radical ideas. Um, and so I think when we when we talk about the way in which you know we've destroyed the environment over the last decades and and how we can respond to that one way to think about it is i think how that was informed by our culture and who we are as individuals and this focus on i as as a person need to get the best possible life i need to have the most comfort mm. i need to be comfortable i need to own these things I need to um, have success and fame and, and social media likes, right? And that's kind of the, the number one goal. And it's the goal despite everything else mm. versus maybe thinking of a culture where it's more about we're connected to the world um, and, and to nature and we want to live with it and experience it and, and maybe grow something that goes beyond ourselves. Mm. I this is maybe a bit philosophical, but I kind of see the two as related, right? So the way in which we've um, destroyed the environment and put that kind of creation and, and um, production of things and having what we need over everything is related to to the underlying culture. But maybe that's all not true because it happens globally and there's very different cultures engaging in it. So It's so fascinating. That's such a fascinating perspective. Do you think then it might be true to say that our sense of self is too small to encompass a meaningful sense of belonging within the natural world? Maybe, yeah. Um, or at least we would have to... No, actually, you know, I think as humans, we are connected to the natural world, but we maybe don't at the moment have the culture that... Mm-hmm. that um, helps us live that connection. So with that in mind, the way that we we are creating cultures that maybe support certain systems, so for instance, I'm thinking about the political and economic systems that we have. Um, you mentioned our desire mm. for success and for um, individual accomplishment, and you know, which are things that I can certainly relate to. Um, a lot of what we try to do when we attain these things is to kind of project ourselves into the future to say okay well when I get this job when I get this marriage or this hot day or the house or the promotion we're kind of projecting ourselves into the future and so I wonder how much of the choices we make now are reliant on this belief in our future both individual and as a society and what might change about how we feel about ourselves if suddenly the sense of human legacy and human civilization comes into question. So to be more concrete, if I am not sure that the people born today will actually survive in great numbers into adulthood because there's food that might be scarce, waters that's going to be scarce, there's going to be mass migration, there's Mm. going to be famine. Um, I know this is painting a very dystopian picture, but let's take it to that sort of extreme to make the point. If I don't believe in the legacy the possibility of legacy or a future, how does that change the sense of self that we might have now and the choices that we make? This is a very deep question. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can have you can have very philosophical answers to it, right? But I think part of that we're seeing at the moment with people kind of saying, hey, our future looks very different than what we thought. Mm our future will have all these consequences quite quickly from destroying the environment and they're acting on it, right? Mm. Because they're scared and um, and they don't see their lives playing out the way that they would have thought they would. Mm. And it, I think the not just how the future changes, but the political stability and climate around you hugely influences how you how you feel and how you act. Mm. I don't I don't think that it would necessarily influence your personality but it gives you a completely different outlook and it it might change how you um how you behave and how you plan your life and we're very used to this political stability at least you know my generation we've grown mm. up in extremely political times 
and we just see um i don't want to call it small <laughs> but we see this slight political disturbance in the in the last few um years and it's already having this impact right on you know our future is uncertain and what about the environment and what about all of this and how is it going to go and how am i going to plan now that i don't know where the future is going to mm. go and it's a very it's a much more unsettled position to be in mm. and we will see how it plays out right but if you look at um generations who've grown up in turbulent times and war times I think it just takes so much energy away from progress mm. and it just all the energy is put into dealing with the pain that is caused right so surviving instead of thriving really yeah not that not that you can't um mm. do anything meaningful when you're struggling to survive right but it's it's a very it's a very different um position to be in and I think a lot of these these uh, like being on a podcast discussing you know where our lives might go all of that gets taken away when it, there's like an immediate threat mm. right and things become a lot more um concrete and it's just i think a completely different life when i talk to my grandmothers who grew up um during the war and after the war it's just a very different outlook on life their focus was to be safe to have a home um to you know live in a peaceful way and and just sort of be okay. And when they when my granny looks at what we do today, she always says, "Oh, you have all these amazing opportunities and look what you can do and all the exploring you can do." Mm. And it's really sad because she, she would have probably done the same had mm. she grown up in similar circumstances, but that it kind of gets taken away when you're dealing with these existential threats and they they kind of last with you for the rest of your life. So interesting having this conversation because I feel like with the climate crisis unfolding as it is and the mm. global south is already experiencing huge impacts uh you know mass flooding droughts etc wildfires well even in California I mean it's not even the global south but um that we're starting to see this coming over the horizon and I think it's starting to feel a lot more concrete and tangible mm. to a lot of people who'd previously been happily trundling on with our day-to-day -day lives I include myself within this um and we currently still have maybe the naive luxury of being able to have these conversations or maybe it's a necessity that we actually get to prepare a little bit to do the work to look at ourselves to think about resilience to think about adaptation to consider how we might use the opportunities available to us the technology to be as adaptive as possible um I wonder, given that we have all of these tools and we have some time to prepare, which many people just are not granted, what do you think may happen when social structures that uphold our current, let's say, social behaviours suddenly change? So, for instance, when we get these political instabilities or natural disasters occur or we get this kind of polarisation between left and right um what happens to us as individuals and as societies when we've got a bit of a heads up but these things are coming our way does it sort of have to go the way of you know your your grandparents who suddenly didn't have the opportunities and it was about survival or is there another way to kind of thrive in these difficult times in the in the, yeah in the times that are to come yeah it's a difficult question i don't know that i'm a <laughs> that i can have a solution <laughs> or just even your sense or yeah your impression i you know i think people have also a different it depends what change it is right mm. but let's just say change of a political system people have different um bandwidth let's say to deal with those changes and to accept mm. them and to adapt within it um and some people really struggle And I just find it a bit ironic at the moment that a lot of this change is pushed through by a shift through to conservatism hmm. when often people who are who are um, aligned with the values of conservatism want to keep things the way that they are, right? Yes, yeah. Um, There is an irony. But it's also, yeah, but it's also very interesting at the same time because to maybe people who are less conservative, now it feels really uncomfortable and why are all these things happening when we thought we'd made all this mm. progress? Um, 
but then on the other side you have to think what about these people who who are conservatives and who've seen a lot of social change over mm. the last decades that they didn't agree with were they feeling alienated the entire time is this is this what it feels like you know mm. um it's very interesting because you kind of have these different groups who feel left behind either way. Yeah. That's why you have to kind of find a middle ground is is what I think. I have these discussions a lot, <laughs> about, you know, around more radical political candidates. And I think, of course, we need all the change, but then it's worth nothing if you leave half of the population or half of people just really upset and, and, and not... Um, not kind of comfortable or safe mm. um, in a way. Mm. But yeah, I'm not a politician. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I find so extraordinary is, and the more I read about this, the more complex the landscape appears to become. So just the sheer complexity of humanity and all the things that are impossible to resolve because it's the you know it's the nature of who we are as a species. We are complex. We are... Um, intention with within ourselves and between ourselves in terms of what we want for ourselves and you know it's just there's just so much complexity and the more I dig the more I, I realize that there are certain things which appear to be irresolvable and maybe that's a good thing but it's about how to cultivate a sense of kinship and tolerance and value to value the traits that maybe we feel less comfortable or familiar with in order to find something that hopefully works for most of the people most of the time. Nobody wants to um, feel excluded or alienated. So that's where I see a bit of a problem with with um, the kind of more extreme sides that have developed in, you know, in British politics or in the US, I think, as well. Because you, you almost feel like there is no solution because either side wins and the other side has completely mm. lost. So as long as you define things as these extreme mm. sides, there's there's never going to be an end to it. But yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a politician. As a psychologist, I can only say it's very emotional, you know. Mm. So when we try and make sense of Brexit, there, it's, it's a very emotional point. It's the only way that I can make sense of it. You mm. know, there's no logical point to it. And I think maybe also there's so much focus on the extremes that we forget that actually many people don't sit at the extremes, that there is a, a huge appetite um, for coming together in some centre ground. But I realise, um, I'm realising that we're already, we're already an hour, but I had two more questions that I want to ask you. Um, maybe okay. I can okay. ask you these two massive questions and you can give me a brief answer, which is completely unfair. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, the first question is, what can we do to strengthen a core sense of self and belonging? Yeah, so, um, like I said, I think you need to talk to people about why they believe in things, what what they see in things, right? So if, if you find someone who supports another political candidate or has a completely different opinion, try and find out what they see in that candidate, why why they believe in them. And I think often you find that you have similar reasons, at least, which gives comfort, right? Mm. So everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants their family to be okay. Um, then obviously there's, uh, there's people who are evil, maybe as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it often can help you. Yeah, I, I kind of don't want to say that. And then I think about people who are like, yeah, but I never want to be... Uh, have these foreigners in my country yeah. right so <laughs> but I would say that even those people they do it out of a sense of fear because to them foreigner means something threatening someone who's going to take away mm. something from them so I would hope to think that if you can if you can show them that that's not the case then they wouldn't think mm. that right maybe that's a bit too optimistic mm. and, and and giving too much credit um no I think I uh, yeah. yeah then there's then there's all the kind of um psychological tricks that we know in psycho hygiene there's a there's a lot of um well-being things you can do just from research what we know what helps people right so if you look at things that make people happy it's it's a meaningful relationships so focusing on on the big relationships in your life over you know work or other constraints and making sure you foster relationships there's things like being active um exercising having experiences in nature actually 
um, that makes people happy and, and, and feel connected. And then not having a long commute, which I recently learned. Yeah, <laughs> if you can. So on that note then, on, on, on recommendations for living a more meaningful or satisfying or pleasant life, um, what one insight or advice would you give to anyone listening about how to achieve that? Yes, yes, you should, you should do psychotherapy if you can. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> but find a good therapist that you like and trust. I remember one of my friends, Dr. Erin Balick, once said to me, it's like, it's like dating. You've got to go on a few dates to make sure you've got the right chemistry. Because if you're going to spend quite a bit of time and money with this person, you want to make sure that, um, that you actually like and trust them. Yeah, but you know, it's also when you, it's like anything, when you want to learn a new sport, you should also find a good class, right? Yeah. But yeah, if you can't totally. find the perfect class, just just do it. Like a therapist also doesn't have to be the best therapist in the world to have some benefit to you. Yeah. <laughs> and but then, at least uh, they've got to be good at what they do. That's for sure. That's, um, yeah, <laughs> certain baseline. I No, I think there's lots of things you can do, but I think with psychotherapy, there's, okay, my parents are therapists, so I'm a bit uh, biased on the subject, right? But there is a lot of stigma around it, yet it's, it's such an easy tool to make such a big difference. So imagine you lived in a world where everyone just sits on their sofa all day and they never work out. That's pretty much the world we live in on a psychological level, right? And oh, that's such a good metaphor. Yeah, and we've learned that we need to exercise and we need to, you know, do a sport or go to the gym but we don't kind of do that for our psycho hygiene. And if you can't go to a therapist, you know, mm. you can do things like meditation, you can read books that mm. help you kind of think about yourself. Um, but it's, um, it's important to even start thinking about that your well-being and your mental health can be something that you can shape. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.